Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Marisa Fear here with me. Welcome to my podcast, Marisa. You're very welcome. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. We are on the island of Sardinia taking part of a fascinating conference around longevity and about human and socioeconomic consequences. As an introduction, Marisa Peer is known as a coach to an extensive client list over the past 25 years, including royalty, rock stars, Hollywood actors, Olympic athletes, CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies and political leaders. She's a speaker, therapist, behavioral expert and also a best-selling author. So Marisa, you've spent a big chunk of your uh, life helping people overcome profound personal issues, enabling them to kind of fully be who they are and do what they came here to do. So what did you learn from this experience so far? I think what I learned is that everyone has the same needs. You know, I worked out a long time ago because I have such a diverse client list that we all only have three things wrong with us. And when you can understand what they are, you understand yourself, but you also understand everyone else too. So understanding what makes people tick is really useful in helping people to change. And what would you say is the impact that you're looking to have today through everything you do? Oh, that's a good question. The impact I like having is I love helping people change, but I like it to be very easy. I think we all have busy jobs and families and lives and We all just don't have enough time to spend ages at night working on personal development, reading books and listening to audios. So my favorite thing, my USP, if you like, is to give people little small adjustments that have massive results. So I like to make the things they have to do to change very simple, very easy, very fast. But that doesn't mean the change is, is little. The change is, is huge. But what you do to facilitate it is not huge. Mm. And a, a big portion of these people listening to this podcast are, I would say, enlightened leaders and people from the business world wanting to use their work and companies as instruments for change and impact. So what are your top pieces of advice to them? I think the biggest piece of advice to all companies is to treat your staff like you would treat your children. You know, we don't really give our children a hard time when they have a bad day. We certainly don't replace them or fire them. And I know with our company, which is getting bigger and bigger, the most important thing is to remember that our staff are people. Sometimes, you know, it's easy to get very frustrated when they do things wrong, but people don't respond to criticism at all. They respond to praise. And often when we have people working for us, if they're not really doing a great job, We look at other things like how loyal they are, how committed they are, and we try to give them a job they can be great at rather than say, look, this is not working. We, we try to tune in to what's going on because I know personally that the thing that makes people stay in a company is to make a difference. If they think they're making a difference, they will stay with you and be incredibly loyal. And if they think they're, they're contributing, so I know myself that we all have the same needs but 
for staff, the more they feel they're contributing, the more they feel they are doing something that makes a difference to the company, the more valued they feel, the more purpose-driven they are, the more meaning they have, and the more likely they are to stay with you, be incredibly loyal, and make a difference. And going back to you, what, what would you say are the transformational points in your life that have kind of influenced you the most? I think the thing that influenced me the most was realizing that I had to take charge of what was going on in my head and also my body. You, you can't give your body to a doctor and say, make me well, fix this problem. You have to do it yourself. And I think when you learn to do it yourself, you feel much more empowered. I know, for instance, that people who just accept an illness, take the medication, go, what next? Or just You have to participate in your wellness, participate in your recovery. And I really want to help people understand that the best doctors in the world can't fix you. They can only facilitate you fixing you. And the best education in the world and the best boss and the best company, they can only facilitate you being the best, but you have to do it. Everything is down to you. Even the relationship. I see people so often who say, you know, I just need a great partner. If I had a great husband, a great wife, I'd be happy. If I had a great baby, oh my God, my life would change. And I see all these people are single, they just need someone to love. But then what happens is you swap the issues of being single and then you go, you know, my husband's driving me crazy. This baby doesn't sleep. So you give up the problems of being lonely mm. and not love, but you just get new problems. And we're always believing that someone will come along and meet all our needs and fix all our problems. And the only person who that can ever be is you. The someone who can fix your life is you. Other people can assist you, can certainly, you know, enrich your life. I mean, I, I adore my husband and daughter. I couldn't imagine my life without them, but I don't expect them to make my life better. I expect them to make my better life enriched by being in it. And I think if we could only teach people early on, stop looking for the night, on the white horse, turning up at your door, or the perfect boss, husband, job, body, to make your life better. You have to make it better now because it's like everything, it's an inside job. Happiness is an inside job. Self-esteem is an inside job. I mean, self-esteem means what you think of you, otherwise it'd be called other esteem or your esteem. It's called self-esteem. And that's an inside job. It's all to do with you taking responsibility for you. And of course, the word responsibility means an ability to respond. So you have to respond to what you need and give it to yourself. Being enough, I mean, that's the number one problem I see. And I just don't see that when I go to tribes. But In the Western world, you know, it starts so early. It starts at four when you go to school and they give the... I mean, my daughter, when she was at school, I noticed that the children who could write their name in a box all perfectly got praised, but their names were Amy and Sam and Ray. I mean, my daughter's name is Phaedra. And she would always say, Mommy, you know, I can't get my name in the box. I'm like, you have the most beautiful name. If it was Joe, you could write it in there in two minutes. And who cares? When you're 10, everybody can write their name in a box. But I think the school system do a great disservice to children because they start to make them all... They say, you know, we love individuality. They really don't. Yeah. They like people to conform. 
And once you try to make children conform, the artistic child who's not good at languages or science or the scientific child who's not good at sport, they start to feel inadequate. Mm. They start to think, what's wrong with me? But, you know, we're not supposed to be the same. We're supposed to celebrate the difference. And yet, we, I mean, even if, if you have a dog and it dies, you get another one, it won't be the same. You can get the same breed, the same age, the same sex. It'll be completely different. You can't even get a hamster identical to the one that died. And yet, we try to make children be the same. And we really should celebrate how individual they are because that's where this I'm not enough comes from. My friend can do math better than me. My friend can do English, but my friend's taller than me, prettier than me got nicer things than me. And it, it happens very early, the I'm not enoughness. I mean, it happens really when children are about two, when people say, you know, why can't you eat nicely like your sister? Your brother, he has no problem getting dressed in the morning. Or dad leaves, or mum's always crying, or there's no money in the house, or there's a lot of stress, because mm. parents at work, and all children think, oh, my mummy and daddy aren't happy must be my fault and they try to make it better and then realize that they can't and then believe oh not only is it my fault but i can't fix it and then we start to acquire what i call learned helplessness and learned hopelessness and then children tag on a new belief it's my fault i'm not good enough otherwise my mum wouldn't be crying my dad they wouldn't fight about money they wouldn't be going to this place called work why do they go to work all the time oh because they like it more than me so then they buy into this if i'm not enough and then they tag on another belief and it will never change it will always be this way it will be like this forever and ever and it isn't true but it feels so true and it, it's a very destructive belief to hold on to it might turn out to be a driver for some people even if it's maybe the wrong driver. but uh... Yeah, it's a huge driver. I mean, I work with a lot of celebrities, and if you look at people like Marilyn Monroe or Philip Seymour Hoffman or Robin Williams, you can see that there was someone who didn't feel enough, and that driver makes them pursue fame quite relentlessly, and they will make it. Mm. But when they make it, now they get a new belief, okay, I'm still not enough, but I've fooled you. This body, this voice, this mm. this talent I have, you like that. But if you knew me, you'd still be disappointed. And then you see the Amy Winehouses and the Whitney Houstons of the world who uh, and the Michael Jacksons who end up killing themselves deliberately or by accident because they, they have, I'm not enough, I'll become famous and then everyone will love me. And then it becomes, well, I'm not enough, I am famous, everyone loves me but they're all con. They don't really love me. And now there's nowhere to go because before there was a dream. So it is a driver. A lot of my clients don't just chase them. Some of them chase money or they chase huge success and they make it, but the belief is still there. I'm not enough. I didn't deserve this money. I don't deserve this success. And one day people are going to find out. And then they go into very self-destructive behavior. They will sabotage themselves because of this feeling of I'm not enough. I mean, look at Harvey Weinstein, you know, that is an addiction no different to any other. I mean, no sane person at peace with themselves would possibly behave like that. I mean, sure, people that 
are exposed to attractive women and have got power will, will take advantage, but not like that, not repeatedly week after week, month after month, but that's clearly someone with all his money and fame does not feel enough. And there's hundreds of people like that. What changes in these people's lives just because they become famous? I mean, we had, for example, at this conference, we saw also Jay Shetty among us and so on. And I couldn't help thinking that, my God, there is like a line of people around him all the time. Yeah. They're going to take photos and he wants to, to speak to everybody and so on. But how does, in general, life change? I mean, you're, I would say, a famous person as well. How did your life change because of it? Uh, I mean, my life changed in a lovely way because I felt tremendous connection. I like it, but um, it doesn't run my life. You know, I'm able to say no. You ring me up and ask me to do stuff and I'm able to say no. It can, you can get very carried away with that. You know, I'm famous, I need special treatment. Yeah. But, you know, my husband or daughter would always bring me back down to earth. So it's lovely to be loved and it's lovely to be a speaker because people love you. But you also have to live your everyday life and not let that, that's not real. It's just you're speaking on stage and there's always a bigger, better speaker right behind you. So I think it's only damaging if you get carried away with it. But if you're still you, I mean, you have to have the right values. You know, what makes me happy? My husband, my daughter, my job, very simple things make me happy. And I think as long as you remember that simple things make you happy rather than big, brash things, you'll be okay. If you would assume that you have all kinds of doors open to you and all resources possible available, is there anything in particular that you would like to innovate or change? Yeah, I'd love to change the way children are educated. I'd, I'd love to start with, I think we should educate parents that you know you have something so precious in your hand and how easy it is to damage children. When you say you're stupid, you're annoying, it's your fault, I should never have had you. And most parents don't mean that. No parent wakes up and thinks, how can I damage my child for life? What can I do? But we often do damage children. So if I had one thing that I could do, it would be to really educate parents on how to handle the self-esteem of a fragile little person. And I change the education system so that we taught children it's more important to know how to run your mind than it is to learn Latin or French, even spelling, you know. All of that stuff, people don't spell anymore because they have computers do it for them. How should we run our minds? You have to dialogue with your mind in a very particular way. You see, your mind is always doing what it thinks you want it to do. Your mind listens to all the language you use and the words you say, and then it assumes that's what you want. So if you imagine if you're a child and maybe you got bullied or your big brother hit you and you were small or your father shouted at you and you were little, your former belief because I, I want to be big. If I was big, this wouldn't happen. If I was big, I could beat my brother. If I was big, my dad wouldn't shout at me. And now the mind's got a very clear imprint where you want to be big. And so many clients I work with who are obese have been abused or molested or just lusted after or made to feel insignificant and they want to be significant. And so they, they wish and long to be bigger. The mind picks that up as an absolute direct command and they become bigger than they ever wanted to be. And no amount of dieting is going to get rid of that because it's an imprint, it's a blueprint 
the mind must work towards in the same way if you read in class when you're six and you get the word wrong and everyone laughs you say to yourself, I never want to draw attention to myself again I never want to read it I never want people to laugh at me and again it becomes a fixed habit of thought and the mind now has a belief you never want to draw attention to yourself and the kind of people that have that thought get completely panic stricken and all kinds of illnesses occur when they're asked, you know, can you chair a meeting? Can you speak to this group? Can you lead the team? Because their fixed belief is I never want to be the center of attention. It's not a belief they're aware of and they often would love to be the center of attention, but the subconscious mind is always acting on outdated stuff because we don't update it, we update our software all the time and we should really update the software within us by dialoguing with our mind saying, this is what I want. I mean, if you say to your mind, I want this, and you're absolutely clear, and you're absolutely specific, your mind will know. That's why vegans don't go, every day I wake up, and I have to try so hard not to eat bacon. Every day, the struggle I have not to eat a bit of roast beef. They never do that, because their mind knows, I don't eat anything that's had a mother. I don't eat anything that had a face. I don't eat creatures. But then the opposite, that's people who say, no, I, I really want to not eat cakes, but I eat them all day and then I feel so bad. And then the next day I'm back eating cakes. I, wa I don't want to eat them. Why am I doing that? Because you keep saying, I love cake. It makes me happy. I need my muffin. I love ice cream. So your mind is now very confused. And your mind's job is to do what it thinks you want, and your job is to make sure there is no confusion, no misinterpretation, no vagueness whatsoever as you make it crystal clear to your mind what you want. And if you do that, it works. Like when I look at sugar, I go, yeah, that cake looks nice, but what do I really want? I want to be fit, I want to live until I'm 100 plus, and sugar isn't gonna help me, so, even though the cake looks nice, my mind knows I've got a bigger picture and that helps me to feel indifferent. In fact, I don't really even see them anymore and that's a good thing. Awareness. What do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now? If there is one like common denominator for all kind of companies. I think if you could work out the needs of your staff and meet their needs, they will never leave. But most companies are so focused on the need of the company, which makes sense. But if you knew what your staff's needs were and could meet them too, you I mean, having loyal staff that stay with you is such a wonderful thing, but it's very easy to go, the company needs this, the company needs that. But if you can look at what your staff need, I mean, there are certain companies. I know that in England, Marks and Spence as an innocent and first direct bank, there are many others, do a phenomenal job of meeting their staff's needs and they have tremendous loyalty. But it's such a shame all companies don't do that. And just to finish off on an even uh, bigger scale, what do you think that the world needs most at this time? I would say, you know, the world needs peace, but really it's all about education, isn't it? I mean, if you could educate people, we wouldn't have wars, we wouldn't have bullying, we wouldn't have hunger. So all the things I'd love to fix, like I'd love people to have peace, not be hungry and to be loved, 
But I understand that really all of that goes back to if we could educate everyone in how to be happy, to like themselves, to like other people, to realize that your potential expands as you move towards it. You could never know what your potential is because as you move towards it, it expands and then it expands again. And unlike a rubber band, it never snaps back. When your mind expands to a new potential, it never goes back. And we could educate people to do so much. So that if I had to pick one thing, it would be everyone to be educated. But to be educated in how to love themselves, love their life, love other people and reach their phenomenal potential, which they don't even know what it is. Hmm. Very good advice. And do you have any particular advice for people who are mid-aged and maybe are going into this phase of life where they are not on top of things at work anymore, they feel that there is a risk that they will become irrelevant in this very uh, modern world. Yeah, I know in Sweden, for instance, they have a whole company where people who've retired want to go back to work. I mean, we're living longer, but we're also living longer with smarter minds. And I would say it's never too late. Some of the most successful people in the world found success. Like for instance, I don't know if you ever watch Fraser, but Martin's father found success as an actor in his 50s. He had a medical mm -hmm. magazine and he was so unfulfilled. And there's somebody who, Mary Wellesley, who wrote The Chamomile Lawn, and she wrote that at 82. Frank McCourt, who wrote Angela's Ashes, wrote that when he retired. And we're always taught about, you know, the young blood and these young, fast minds. And... It's very easy to think, oh, I'm surplus to requirements. Look at all these young people coming up. They're so tech savvy and they're so fast. But some of the most successful, Roald Dahl was another one. They achieved success much later. In fact, Roald didn't become successful till he died, which is a great shame. But if you look at people like Tishan and Rubenstein, composers, artists, writers, often their success came much, much later. And so it's important to recognize that your talent has got nothing to do with your years. Often when you've raised a family and retired from work, you have the time to think, I've always wanted to write, I've always wanted to paint, I've always wanted to do something. And that can still be your time. It's never too late to find a new career. It's never too late to have a happy childhood. It just isn't true that they used to say that if you haven't made it by 30, you never will. That's simply not true. I don't think it ever was true, but it's mm. certainly not true now. Mm. Thank you so much, Marissa. You're a wonderful person. Thanks for sharing. Well, thank you. So to find out more about Marissa and her work, you can head to marissapeer.com and you will also find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. So remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Acast and I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact and if you go to marissapeer.com we do give away a lot of free courses on self-esteem on money blocks so if you want some free products on how to get rid of money blocks or mm -hmm. relationship blocks or career blocks just go to marissapeer.com we give away at least four free products every month there's no hidden catch, just take whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks for mentioning You're that. Really. So thanks for listening and until next time, uh, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.